If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. The book of James is written by James, the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes to believers who have moved away because of persecution. A part of what this all means is that his original audience, as he addresses them, are the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. They are Jewish, which means they know the Old Testament. They know the book of Psalms. Coming from Jerusalem, and they've been scattered, they've heard the teaching of the apostles, which the apostles pass on to them what they have received from the Lord Jesus. As I said last week, it's very likely that many of the people reading James for the first time had actually heard Jesus during his teaching ministry. It's been argued that the early church, which is Jewish, learned much of the teachings of Jesus by heart. And the book of James, this letter, a sermon, is meant to take advantage of that fact. So where he quotes Jesus, if not directly, without saying so, he realizes that those who are reading what he's written will make the connection. There are at least 35 allusions to the teachings of Jesus in this book. That is once every three verses. But he doesn't quote chapter and verse. He doesn't even say this is what Jesus said. He simply says, and people know, oh, this is what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. As one author would say, the early reader would immediately recognize that James was reminding them of the sayings of Jesus. So what we will find in our study as we go through the book of James is continuity, is connection between the Old Testament, and I will focus on the book of Psalms, the teachings of Jesus, and what James writes in this letter. Failure to recognize that James is writing to a Jewish audience will in fact cause us to miss much of what he is writing. He isn't writing, he wasn't writing to G Gentile believers. You're like, wait a minute, I'm a Gentile, I'm not Jewish. Does that mean the book of James has nothing for me? Um, no, not at all. I mentioned last week, the book of James has not been rejected as much as neglected, and I would say by Gentile Christians. So what are we to make of the book of James? What we are to do is to know the Old Testament and to know the Gospels, and then we'll be able to make the connections that James is doing and his original readers would clearly see. Many studies of James are, are hindered, they're hampered by two misconceptions. The first is that people think that the book of James has no structure, there's no coherence. Um, it does have a structure, it is a sermon, so I hope to show you as we go through this, it starts with a long introduction, it has a long conclusion, and three points in between in chapters two, three, and four. It does seem, and I think this is why people think this, that James makes connections with words. And it almost makes you think it's a sort of a stream of consciousness type of writing. So, for example, if you look at the beginning, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Well, the word in Greek for greetings is literally joy to you. That's what it means, joy to you. So he says to the 12 tribes, joy to you. Then the next sentence, consider it pure joy. 
So it's joy and then joy. And then in verse 4, it ends with not lacking anything. And then verse 5, if anyone lacks something. So there seem to be these connections from verse to verse of various words. Um, but it isn't a stream of consciousness. He's very aware of the structure of this sermon that he is sending to them. The second misconception that people have is that James's Christianity is really peculiar. It's not orthodox. We need to wait for Paul to come along to show us orthodox Christianity. Um, this is simply not the case. His continuity with the Old Testament, with the teachings of Jesus, make it very clear that what he is teaching is it's orthodox. It is not peculiar. The problem, I would say, is with us, our lack of understanding of making the connections with the Old Testament and with the Gospels. James is writing as a pastor, and the pastoral tone of this letter, I think, is quite evident in two ways. First of all, he has exhortations. Now, when we think of exhortations, we might think of encouragement, but what he is doing is, in fact, giving imperatives. He's giving commands. He is urging them. He's telling his readers what to do. And yet, at the same time, he is very concerned about them. And so the other thing that we find is that he refers to them as my brothers, at least 15 times in this letter. My brothers or my dear brothers. Um, he recognizes and he wants them to remember that he is a believer just like them. He's not somehow higher than them, so he's not really a brother with everyone in the pew. No, they are, in fact, brothers and sisters. He begins his letter with an imperative. If you look at verse number two, consider it pure joy. This is a command. Okay? This is not an option. It's not like, yeah, if you feel like it, why don't you consider it joy? It is, in fact, a command. So there is pastoral affection, my brothers, okay? Consider pure joy, my brothers. And then there is the imperative. The NIV says pure joy, the, NS, uh, the ESV and the King James have all joy. And what are we to consider, consider all joy? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. This is perhaps the most difficult part of this book. There it is right at the beginning. Um, we may agree with what he says in the next verse. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and that sort of makes sense. But for someone to say, listen, consider it joy when you face trials, I think is a little bit difficult. We saw last week that the noun is joy. The verb is rejoice. Okay. So how are we to view joy? How are we to view it? We are to view it in terms of the past, the present, and the future. The festivals that God appointed for Israel had the purpose of reminding God's people what he had done in the past. That's what Passover is all about, for example. And they were to rejoice, times of rejoicing, we read in Numbers 10. It is also pointed ahead to what he was going to do for them, and they were to rejoice. But there's also a sense of being in his presence at that given moment, and they were to rejoice. But circumstances may make that seem like an impossibility. Are you, are you kidding? Do you know what I'm going through? How am I to consider this joy? How am I to rejoice? Joy is a present reality that is anchored in the past, 
There's the anchor. There's another anchor. It's in the future. It anticipates what God is going to do for his people. He has done much for us. He will do much for us. And so at the present moment, we may not feel like we should have joy, but with the past and the future as our anchors, we can in fact rejoice. There's another problem though, and that is that we think of joy as an emotion, primarily as an emotion. We see it as standing alone. Do you feel the joy? Do you have the joy? I've got the joy. Do you have the joy? Um, I think by the time we're done with the book of James, you will see that joy is in fact an activity. It is something that we do. We rejoice. It isn't simply, simply something that we feel. Our actions must accompany what is going on in our lives. So he will say later in chapter 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And then in chapter 2, he talks about if a brother or sister come in when you're having a meeting of the congregation and someone says, listen, I wish you well, go and be fed. They're hungry, they don't have clothing and you're just like, have a nice day. Uh, that is not sufficient. He will say, faith not accompanied by actions is dead. And this is one of the problems people have with the book of James. And that, I think, the problem is theirs, it's not James. That joy, in fact, is to be seen in action. Okay. So, in the Old Testament, we saw that there were times of rejoicing. These are the feasts that God had ordered. It is reflected in singing. We have the Song of Moses. We have Hannah's prayer after God gives her the son Samuel. And we have the book of Psalms. We have an entire book, the longest book in the Bible, that is one made of songs and songs of rejoicing. Joy has at least four, four parts that I can think of. There are probably many more. We reflect on the nature of God, who he is and what he has done. Secondly, we, have done, we remember what he has done in the past. Thirdly, we give thanks. And then we anticipate what is God going to do in the future. In all of these, there's a sense of here I am right at the moment. I may not feel joy. Um, that's okay. Because it is not merely a feeling. It is something that is to be seen in action. In the Bible, the word joy appears almost 200 times. Almost 50 of those are in the book of Psalms. That is one-fourth of the mentions of joy in Scripture are found in the book of Psalms. And I just want to read several passages. Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then perhaps one of the more familiar passages in Psalm 30, weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 92, for you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. As I said last week, this has a connection with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of things against you, 
evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So he says, consider it all joy. But then we get that gut punch when he says, when you face trials of many kind. I think I've mentioned this before, but I have a picture in my mind that when Jesus first gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he started and said, blessed. And somebody nudged his buddy and said, this is going to be good. This is going to be a good sermon. Blessed. And perhaps as people began to read James's letter, and he said, consider it all joy. It's like, yeah, this is going to be good. But then Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not what we're expecting. And James says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's just my opinion. But letters were usually written within a particular context. And I think James's letter, his decision to write and to begin as he does, he may have heard that, yes, they've left Jerusalem because of persecution, but they're having difficulties where they are as well. Whether or not he's heard such things, we're not told. Um, but his sermon should be seen as a response to what he has heard. So, whenever you face trials of many kinds, the NIV has face. Uh, the King James has fall into trials. Uh, the ESV has when you meet trials. But the word that is used is the same word that is used in the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that he fell among thieves. That is, he was ambushed. He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was ambushed by thieves. And I think ambush is perhaps the more appropriate noun here. It indicates the unexpected nature of trials that come into our lives. They're not always anticipated. Trials of many kinds. Somehow it's tempting to think, if I could see the trial coming, I'd be better prepared. I'd be able to handle it. But the reality is, they ambush us. They come quite unexpectedly. They don't come in the form that we expect. They don't come from the source or sources that we expect. I think the prime example of this is Peter when it is a young maiden who causes him to deny that he knows the Lord Jesus. It is worth noting that in the book of Psalms, ambush is usually used with regard to wicked people. Psalm 10, he, that is this wicked person, lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and dra drags them off in his net. The trials that James is talking about will now be the theme from here, verse 2, to verse number 19. In verses 2 through 11, he deals with external trials, trials that come to us. In verses 12 through 19, he deals with internal struggles. As you like, you think, boy, if, if I can see the trial coming, I'll be ready. I'll, I'll, I'll be poised to deal with it. And the reality is there may be internal struggles or trials as well. If you look, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. What is the purpose of these trials? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You'll notice that he says, because you know. This is not new information, okay? His readers know this. It's not some secret that he just learned or some secret he didn't tell them before they left, and now he's telling them. 
This is something that they know. They, in fact, had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. They may, in fact, be going through hardships even as they read this letter. They have a sense of what a trial can accomplish. It is the testing of your faith, verse 3, and the testing of your faith produces perseverance or staying power, and staying power must finish its work. That is, it must reach completion. The testing of your faith. It means the experience of having your faith put to the test. Um, James seems to take it for granted here, I think rightly so, um, that the natural effect of trials is to really imperil us continuing in the faith. Um, Perhaps he had in mind the parable of the sower, in which the seed fell among four kinds of soil, the path, the rocky soil, among thorns and good soil. In the first case, the evil one came and took the seed away. In the second case, it was a person who heard the word and received it with joy, Okay. but since he had no root, he lasts only a short time when troubles or persecution comes. Because of the word, he falls Persecution comes because of the word. He, fall, he quickly falls away. The third, those that fell among thorns, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, that is the word, making it unfruitful. In each case, the trials prove the faith to be false. They, in fact, did not believe. They claimed to believe. They claimed to have faith, but they did not. I don't know that we hear this as much as when I was younger, but some people seem to think that being a Christian means that you will be exempt from any difficulties in life. And the question I think James would say, well, how will your faith be proved genuine? What will your response be when difficulties come? Particularly when you think, oh yeah, I'm going to have a hassle-free life as a Christian. I became a Christian, so I wouldn't have any problems. And then when problems come, what happens? Is your faith genuine? Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. There is a legitimate place for the, the testing of our faith. By the way, just a side note, it occurs to me that faith might need defining or redefining in the church today because it's been, defi- it's been distorted beyond recognition. Faith is right belief about God. That's what faith is. Okay? It's trusting God based on his revelation. It's not a hunch. It's not a feeling. Um, it's not what we think he should do. It's not what we want him to do. Faith is right belief about God. And to be in faith and to have faith are the same. That is, they are based on right belief about God. I suspect that what many people call faith today is more like wishful thinking. We are to have right belief about God. So, first of all, it tests our faith and then it develops staying power perseverance okay so you, it's it's so that there's a sort of a, a steadiness to you 
that you continue. It's not so like, a, you know, yes, I believe, and then I don't. And then I do, and then I don't. He will come to that, and we will see this, Lord willing, next week, the double-minded person who believes and does not believe at the same time. On the face of it, I think there's nothing unusual about what James says here. That, in fact, going through difficulties produces staying power. Um, I mean, just think of personal relationships that may, in fact, begin with great excitement. But then when difficulties come, uh, the relationship is either made stronger or it falls apart. And then he says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Um, by the way, if you look at verses 3 and 4, the connection is the word perseverance. Okay? The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work. So, again, this is one of those things where people are like, oh, he's just sort of uh, going with it, the stream of consciousness. I think he's very carefully prepared his sermon. Perseverance is steadfastness. Okay? It is staying power. It's not passive submission. It's not like, well, whatever happens, that's I surrender myself to it. There is endurance. There's stickability. How long will we have to be steadfast, though? Well, until it has finished its work. And how long is that? Well, you want to be mature. You want to be complete, not lacking anything. It's a case of already but not yet. We are already God's children, but we are not yet finished. We are works in progress, and the work will continue until the day we die. We are works in progress. There is to be completeness. I find it interesting that, that we have in the NIV that you may be mature and complete. But the word that is used is the same word used in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, it is interesting that ESV and the King James have perfect. Uh, that's the connection between the teachings of Jesus and what James writes here. James then goes on to talk about wisdom, and the Lord willing, we will look at this next week. In verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Again, Lord willing, we'll come back to this next week. But now we come to verse number 12. We're skipping ahead. Now he talks about internal trials, if you wish. And verse number 12, he uses the word trial, and then in verse 13, the word tempted. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Okay, that's good. You know, that's, you're persevering. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Um, just a side note, I have to mention this. 
you know, when you, when you read this, this, this interesting progression that he says, that you have desire is conceived, then it gives birth to sin. I thought, boy, James is really clever. Until you go back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 7, which is against Cush, who persecuted David. Um, Verse 14, he who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. James is thinking in Old Testament, he's thinking in terms of the Psalms. So what we find here is we have trials. We have the external trials, and then we have the internal temptations, the internal trials. So which is it? Which is, is a trial different than a temptation? Um, actually, it's not. The difference is our response to it. See, a trial is a testing of our faith. And it gives us the opportunity to go forward, to trust God. But at the same time, it can be the temptation to turn away from God and go our own way. This means that every trial has the potential to become a temptation. It isn't as though we have, oh, these are the trials over here and these are the temptations over here. It's actually one and the same. The question is our response. Every trial may become a temptation. And James isn't just playing word games with us here, okay? Um, He's teaching that we need to move ahead by God's grace to maturity to the crown in verse number 12. We don't do this in our own power. Okay? It depends on our response. Do we trust God when we are faced with a trial? Every trial that comes into our lives has the potential to be a temptation to walk away. So when a trial comes, we have to make a decision. Will I persevere? Verse 3 and 4. Will I go with God? Or will I, in fact, listen to the voice within me? And where does this voice come from? Uh, yeah, it doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from God. This is something we need to hear. Because it's all that easy to blame God. It's not my fault. God did this to me. Uh, you may remember, because we get this back from our original ancestor, Adam, when God asked him what he did, and what did Adam say? The woman you put here, she offered me the fruit and I ate it. So it's your fault. If you in fact had not put the woman here, I would have never done such a thing. We cannot blame God because God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. He is holy. It is not in God's nature to tempt us to do what is wrong. Hold on, if you would, with me here. With every gift that God gives us, there is the potential to walk away. It is not to say that God is tempting us. God is testing our faith. Will we, in fact, trust in him? Or will we take the gift and run and go our own way? 
When God was giving a land to Israel, he also gave them a perilous path leading to it to see how their hearts were. Would they, in fact, walk with him? In the book of Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 8, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. It's the promised land. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. God's not trying to trip us up. He's not trying to tempt us. Okay? He tests us so that we can learn, we can pass the test, we can rest our faith in him and not in ourselves. If, in fact, we give in to temptation, the fault lies with us and not with God. The tempting voice is a voice of our own sinful nature. God's way may seem hard. Our way may seem a lot easier and maybe on some level makes a lot more sense than what God intends for us. Um, we are sinners. We are broken. What begins as desire becomes an avenue to sin and death. The King James uses the word lust. The NIV has the word evil desire, the phrase evil desire. But James uses a neutral word, indicating that desire in and of itself is neither right nor wrong. It's a desire. Okay? By our own desires, we are led astray. But it isn't that the desire in and of itself is wrong. It is the pollution in our heart that causes the desire to go off track. God made us as human beings with desires. That's part of what it means to be human. The question is, will we go the right way or will we go our own way? So, you know, I still haven't answered the question, what is a trial? Let me start by saying, I think most of us think of a trial as something that is difficult and painful. I mean, trial just has that negative. It's something that is difficult and painful. It's interesting, if you go upstairs and look in the various Bible dictionaries, invariably, if you look up trial, they'll say, see sufferings. There usually isn't a, an entry for trials. You have to go to sufferings to find out what trial means. Um, I don't think that's actually the case. The examples that James gives point in a very different direction. Look at verse number 9. We skipped to verse number 12, but let's go back to verse number 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, it blossom, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So you're like, okay, well, what is the connection? I thought we were talking about trials here. Well, you'll notice that James begins by addressing the poor. 
and people might in fact see poverty as a trial, as a difficulty, as suffering. But then he mentions the rich, and I hardly think that we think of being rich as a trial. Um, I think James would say they are both in fact trials, they are testings of our faith. Both of them are to take pride in their position. The poor man is actually exalted. The rich man is actually humbled. Okay. It goes back to the command, consider it all joy, my brothers. A new perspective is offered in which one's circumstances are viewed not through the eyes of the world's wisdom, but in light of a wisdom sought for God, from God. And Lord willing, again, we will look at the issue of wisdom next week. If we ask God for wisdom, and God gives us wisdom, we will see our position in life in the light of his truth. So in the midst of poverty, a believer can say, how rich I am, I am a child of the king. And in the midst of wealth, the rich brother can say, what a wretch I am, blessed are the poor in spirit. Each one keeps his or her life in view in light of eternity and not their present circumstances. The wisdom comes from God who is a giving God. One who gives us the ability to see things as they really are to arrive at right definitions and to not live by appearances. We walk by faith, not by sight. So the comparison is really that of being fragile. A rich person will fade like a flower does, like the blossom on a flower will fade. The magnetism of having things, of being rich, is really quite powerful. It is a trial. It is a trial. We are being tested. Okay. If that's the case, why is it that we usually think of suffering when we hear the word trial? Um, well, there are certainly passages in the New Testament that would support that position. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. 1 Peter 1 And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer in all kinds of trials. Romans 5 not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So in these passages, it's persecution, suffering, but it leads to perseverance. Um, and I think, at least in the past, we may have turned away from such passages because at least in this country we have freedom of religion. We, we don't really experience persecution. We do have brothers and sisters at the present moment in other countries who are being persecuted. Yeah, but we're not. So we tend to associate persecution with the suffering. But there's also other kinds of suffering. Sickness, 
loneliness, bereavement, disappointment, loss of various kinds. And I believe that these, in fact, are trials from God. The question is, will we trust God? Will our faith be in God? What is the purpose of a trial? The testing of our faith to produce staying power. Staying power must finish its task. Yeah. But I would put before you today that it is not difficulties alone that test our faith. In a real sense, the easy road in life may be the greater test of our faith than the difficult road. Referring back to the parable of the sower, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. In the Old Testament, in the life of Israel, it was manna. The trial of manna. I don't usually think of manna as a trial, but listen. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. I mean, food is produced, it's, it's given to them every day. What else could you ask for? It's your daily bread. But it's a test. Would they obey God? Would they trust God? I read to you earlier from Deuteronomy 8 that when they get to the, tr- to the promised land, there will in fact be a series of trials. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I would submit to you that trials are not simply the difficult road. Trials are also the easy road. On the one hand, I would say, the time may come when circumstances mock your belief in God. When the cruelty of life denies God's goodness, how can you say God is good? When his silence calls into question his power, why doesn't he do something about this? When the chaotic, meaningless jumble of events challenges the possibility of the creator's control, really, really God's in control? The temptation is then not to follow God, but to follow our own path. That's on the one hand. The other hand, uh, several teachers here today, there's one question that drives teachers nuts, at least me. It's when students say, is this going to be on the test? Um, Christians aren't much different. I think Christians are like, oh, 
oh, oh, th this is a test, isn't it? The, this difficulty, this suffering, the problems I'm having, this is a test, right? Lord, this, this is a test. You're, you're testing my faith. The reality is that all of life is a test. All of it. The easy, the difficult, the good, the bad. It's all a test. It's easy to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really going through hard times right now. I've even had people say, you know, oh, so-and-so is really going through trials right now. And they don't mean they're having a good life. It's like they're having a difficult time. I remember years ago, someone said to me that he would attend a particular church, a particular ministry. He said, when I'm feeling weak. And, and I said to him, we're always weak. He said, Oh, yeah, you're right. All of life is a test. When things are going well, do we forget? Do we forget that God has done this? When things are going badly, yeah, then we run to God in prayer and we ask him to fix it. All of life is a test. It's a trial. And James says, trials of many kinds. It's not just one kind, not just the bad kind, the suffering kind. It could in fact be the good kind where everything is going well. And yeah, I forgot to pray today. I forgot to give thanks today. I, I really made some good decisions there. I'm a pretty lucky person. Hold on, it's a test. Will you keep your faith in God? Or will you go your own way? The people that James writes to, I think, are in fact, they may be going through difficult times, and when we get to chapter five, some of them aren't. I think some of them are doing pretty well. But in both cases, it is in fact a trial. You might say, well, wait a minute, Damon, if everything in life is a trial, that's exhausting. And James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. God gives liberally. We're not in this by ourselves. Do we imagine for a moment that we are? We just finished a series entitled Trial and Grace. We began with Abraham and worked through Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And we saw that Abraham and his descendants were ambushed time and time and time again by various trials. Not temptations. God did not tempt Adam, uh, Abraham to sleep with Hagar. Sarah went to him and gave a suggestion and Abraham had the potential to say, no, I'm going to trust God. We're going to trust God. But instead he gave in to the temptation he waited 25 years for Isaac. And then he was told to sacrifice Isaac. And that was a trial that he passed. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was accused of assaulting the owner's wife and put into prison. 
there were temptations for Joseph. One was to become so embittered by what his brothers had done to him. To become bitter at what Potiphar's wife had done to him. To somehow want revenge. And when his brothers showed up during the time of famine, for him to think, you guys are toast. Now I'm getting my revenge. It was all a trial. It was all a trial. Everything in life is a trial. And we are to look to God moment by moment by moment. It's very strange. But I think some imagine that if you are a mature believer, if you're a mature Christian, you no longer need to look to God for anything. You're mature. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That never changes. We always are to look to him. In good days and bad days. I would almost argue more in good days because it doesn't come naturally. The bad days, yeah. We're on our knees, absolutely. But in the good days, when things are going well, we're to count it all joy that God has brought that trial into our life. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's quite astounding that you have revealed yourself You have revealed who we are, our purpose, the nature of creation, what we are to do, and yet we just seem to love to go our own way. You have redeemed us. You have forgiven our sins. You have given us commands to follow, and yet we want to go our own way. We want to define things the way we want to. So trials are only those bad days. Forgetting that we may in fact be led astray by those good days. Led astray to no longer pray, to no longer look to you, to no longer trust in you, to think we've got it made. I thank you for this letter, this sermon that James wrote. All these centuries later, it still speaks to us. May we rejoice in the fact that you are testing us day by day, that our faith would be found genuine, that we would in fact develop endurance and staying power. And the process become more like the Lord Jesus become sons and daughters who look to their father moment by moment. In the words of Paul, praying without ceasing because we trust in you. I thank you for bringing us together today and ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray for the children as they start school tomorrow that you would keep them safe from harm. We pray for Zib as she returns to work. And for Celeste, that you would provide child care for them. 
for each one of us as we walk through the world in the coming week. May we look to you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.